This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. In some ways, I'm more concerned about, you know, longer term mental health or, or um, social development effects. But I also know from years of research that if uh, kids don't get some of those foundational skills, if their parents aren't able to engage them in tutoring, if their teachers aren't able to, um, you know, do those interventions quickly, their opportunities will slip away from them in life. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Search Associates. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher here in the lovely Moonyard Studios in Gorge, North Tacoma. We are having our continuing conversation about back to school. Uh, as I may have mentioned before, we are trying to talk to people in different uh, fields of education and different points of view about the year that's coming ahead. Uh, with the Delta variant on the rise, I think a lot of folks were looking forward to a normal year, and I think that we are... I'd like there to be a normal year, uh, but I'm not sure that's what we're in for. And so I'm just having people on and kind of talking about their points of view. And so my guest today is Robin Lake. Robin, how are you? I'm doing really well, Nate. How are you? I'm doing very well, too. So, Robin, I have your bio here, but instead of me walking through your bio, can you talk about what you do at SERPI and what SERPI is? Sure. Well, I'm a researcher, and SERPI, or the Center on Reinventing Public Education, is a research and policy center out of the University of Washington in Seattle. So we are, um, you know, our goal is is to use evidence to inform better um, educational options for all kids, especially the most vulnerable. And so in this series of conversations, I'm talking to a practitioner, I'm talking to a community member, I'm talking to a researcher, and then a parent and a student. And so you're the policy researcher, essentially. Um, We started this conversation before we started recording by me saying, I want to say on the record, that just I appreciate uh, the work that you do. And even when we don't disagree on policy, I appreciate where you come from on policy. I'm going to start with that. Um, It's so nice. Thank you. It was interesting. <laughs> Thank you. It was interesting for me last year to be in Abu Dhabi and watch the discourse back home about reopening. Uh, in many ways, in Abu Dhabi, I think we were doing things smarter than here. And but in the end, we also ended up being remote the last two weeks of school, two weeks of school, uh, because we had some positive tests. I was struck, and I, I, tell me if I'm incorrect on this. I felt like on my timeline that you and Dana Goldstein from the New York Times were two of the more vociferous is the wrong word, but I'm going to use that word for right now, uh, advocates for reopening schools. Uh, Is that a factual uh, representation of, of, of things last year? I hope so. I hope I was one of the loudest, um, strongest voices on reopening. I was also a strong voice on on initial closures. <laughs> so, you know, just just take a step back. I think we were in, in communication very, very on in the pandemic. And I was watching what was happening overseas and waving my hands here in Seattle saying, hey, we got to get ready. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've told the story before that I, my school had a very early spring break because seasons are different over there. And so back in 2020, when we closed, we closed like the last week of February and I was literally like flying back from Indonesia on spring break. And then I was trying to warn folks back in Tacoma about like, this is going to come y'all ways too, but people weren't trying to hear me on that. Okay, so you were a vociferous advocate for both closing at the beginning of the pandemic and also reopening. Can you talk about a little bit, help me understand or educate me a little bit about why you were an advocate for reopening when you were? Oh, when I was. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, my concern is get the kids back in school as fast as possible to, of course, address their learning needs, but... You know, I've got two teenagers at home and I was watching them just get bluer and bluer and more disconnected from their friends. And, you know, um, we were we were seeing real uh, challenges, real problems in kids, mental health there. You know, just everything was going wrong. So it seemed it seemed desperate to me to get kids back in schools as quickly as possible, get them into at least just normal schedules and engagement with their friends. Where or what are some examples of places or people or districts or states who you think handled things really, really well with the closing, closing and reopening? Well, look, I mean, you know, my first caveat is, you know, we've, we've been critics and, and we've called out slow action where we could. But I, I also want to just recognize, you know, this was unprecedented and, and nobody, nobody had a, a roadmap here or a recipe. So. Um, there were some places, I think, that um, weren't perfect, but at least moved quickly. Um, I documented, um, uh, you know, a, a number of, of places. Well, again, just to step back on, on closures, our own backyard here, North Shore School District, was one of the first to close and, and go remote. And I think there was just really strong leadership, you know, sort of um, built on some trust between teachers, parents, central office folks that had been, you know, established in the past and then could be moved on quickly when the crisis emerged. And then the same thing, I think, was true on reopening, that um, trust, good relationships, and strong leadership kind of came together to just take action and say, look, we're not going to get everything perfectly here. Uh, we're going to um, understand that there are risks. We're going to do our best to mitigate them, but we're going to try something. So, you know, I think some places were just more nimble and, and kind of willing to just jump into uncertainty. And then some places like Miami-Dade in Florida, we've admired, again, they haven't done everything perfectly by any means, but we've admired that um, they uh, they really tried to be prepared for all contingencies. And, and I think one of the things that set up a lot of school districts in Florida for that was that they're used to hurricanes, right? And so they, you know, they had remote learning, they had state mandated remote learning plans in place pre-pandemic. And so, you know, it wasn't something they were completely unfamiliar with. That's super interesting for me in my like admitted liberal progressive bubble that like one, Florida did good thing. And then also to the idea that like hurricane preparedness is also pandemic preparedness. Interesting. Um, let's, let's, let's kind of pivot to looking at this year coming up. 
So you talked about who you think did things well. Uh, you can avoid naming names if you want to, uh, but who are some folks or what are some places who you hope have learned lessons from 2020 and 2021? You know, I think there were some places and some people who were kind of like deer in headlights in um, in the face of, of crisis. And um we were just afraid to take risks and so hunkered down and did nothing. And, you know, that's, I think that's normal human, normal human characteristic. Um, and there were other places that were some of the same places that were really um, stuck in a political quagmire. Mm-hmm. And that often came with, um, you know, union negotiations going south um, unclear or um, poor directives from the state. Um, uh, there was just a lot of of chaos, and um, in the face of that, some folks just moved very, very slowly, very, very cautiously. And what that meant was months and months and months and months of remote learning for kids. And we're starting to see the result of that in the studies that are coming out. Kids lost a lot of learning opportunity, uh, lost a lot of opportunity for social development. So they're owed a lot. We have a lot of work to do. And we've, you know, my concern about the fall is uh, we've got to get to it. We've got to get kids back in classrooms as fast as possible, keep them safe and keep them learning all year long. And I'm afraid that it's going to be complicated. It's going to be more complicated than most folks have planned for. Sure. It's, I, I can, I can hear a listener right now, like saying, talking to their phone saying, when you talk about learning loss, we're talking about measured by test scores. And like, there's that criticism of test scores and testing as like a measure of learning. Uh, when you're saying learning loss, are you referring to test data or are there other data points we're looking at? Yeah, so we just produced a, a just a, an overview of the research to date on this front, and we looked at academic impacts. We have a sep- second paper coming out on social, emotional, and mental health impacts, and a third on impacts for kids with special needs. So we're trying to take as holistic a view of this as possible. In fact, we're, we're thinking of this as a profile of the American student that will emerge over time, and we need to look at it in a lot of different aspects. When it comes to the academic Academic impacts, you know, all mostly what we've got to go on are test scores. And so what we're seeing in the in the state and local test data is a really consistent picture that math skills in particular are not showing up as um, uh, not as many kids are at proficiency in math skills. And well, Nate, you're a teacher, you know that you know, there are some things that just are foundational skills that if kids don't have them they will struggle next year if they go into algebra two without a good basic foundation and algebraic computation. So, um, so that's that, but we did look at some other indicators uh, on learning in particular, and we've seen things that, you know, every teacher or parent knows just kind of hits them in the, in the gut, like failure rates, course failure rates are way up, especially among low income kids and kids of color. 
that's something we should be worried about. <laughs> we should be worried about. And then we see from teachers that in survey after survey, survey, they're reporting, they were just able to cover less ground less last year, sometimes by up to a third, you know, just out of necessity with remote learning, having to toss a bunch of things they hoped to get to. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a concerning picture. And now, you know, in the hands of great teachers and resilient kids, those things can be recovered. And, you know, as a mom, in some ways, I'm more concerned about, you know, longer term mental health or, or um, social development effects. But I also know from years of research that if uh, kids don't get some of those foundational skills, if their parents aren't able to engage them in tutoring, if their teachers aren't able to, um, you know, do those interventions quickly, their opportunities will slip away from them in life. You mentioned two things I actually was very curious about, and I want to just see if you have more data than I do. Um, I've seen anecdotal reports and have heard from colleagues here in the States about the number of students who just disappeared. And so as a researcher, do you have any data on how many students just didn't show up and never showed up to online learning? It, this is a black hole in data. It's, it's, really, um, it's really problematic. So um, we know there are kids who are missing. Enrollment rates are way down across the country. Now, some of those are little kids whose parents decided just, yeah, I'm not going to send them to kindergarten this year. This is not the year. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Is that the end of the world? Probably not. Um, but some of them are older kids who have literally disappeared, um, have decided to take jobs, um, opt out of finishing their high school career, that kind of thing. We don't know how many. We, we do not know how many. It's, um, it's a missing hole in data. Some states like Connecticut have pretty good data on chronic absenteeism and have seen um, sharp increases in the number of kids who have missed a lot of time during the year. Uh, but it's something that every local community should be collecting data on um, and develop, most important, developing a strategy to reconnect with missing kids, just figure out where are they, what are they doing, how can we kind of re-engage them in in schooling and figure out what it will take to get them back on track. Yeah. I think again, thinking about my bubble. So my bubble is very high school centric and I heard a lot from students or from, sorry, from teachers about students who basically their families were like, go get a job. And so during the quarantine, they were working fast food or working some sort of job supporting the family. And now how do we re-engage them in schools? Yeah. You know, one thing I want to say on that, Nate, is we've seen some really creative solutions emerge from communities across the country. Mm -hmm. There's a group called Oakland Reach, uh, obviously out of Oakland, California, and they've done amazing work just working with their communities, listening to the needs and trying to figure out solutions that will work for them. And one of the things they did for teenagers was to offer um, summer learning uh, courses and programs, and they paid kids to attend hmm. uh, because they knew that the kids had to earn money and they'd rather have them earn money doing, you know, uh, getting back on track with learning than working at McDonald's. That makes sense. I'm very attuned to solutions coming out of Oakland because in many ways, Tacoma is in Oakland to Seattle, San Francisco. And so that, that speaks to me. The other thing you mentioned that I'm curious about is students with special needs. 
if I think about my online instruction, um, I struggled to, to meet the needs of my students who had learning accommodations um, and to differentiate from them in the ability that they – or to the level they needed to. And, like, I, I busted my hump to do it, but it was a struggle. I really wonder to the extent to which students who are more profoundly impacted than my students were were served. And so I guess my question here is what are – what data do we have about the extent to which students with special needs uh, were – had their needs met throughout the pandemic? Yes. Well, um, you know, one of the more disturbing findings from our paper on academic outcomes and the, the other paper focused specifically on students with special needs is there's just not a lot of information emerging in studies. Uh, studies, you know, they first studies are problematic because one, they just look at the average outcomes for kids and how many kids are average, not mine. <laughs> and then, um, you know, in terms of uh, students with special needs, academic outcomes, therapies, interventions, services that are legally entitled to, we just don't have good information. There have been very, very few studies on this. Anecdotally, we hear from families across the country, you can see in Facebook chats and things that kids haven't been well served. And, you know, I'm particularly concerned about older kids who are about to age out of the system or, yeah. or do for transition services and things that they haven't gotten. And I've heard some horror stories from families saying, you know, the district has told us, sorry, you're just out of luck. We can't provide those services for you. Good luck. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not, not a pretty picture. And we do know that, you know, complaints um, to the feds, complaints to states are up. Um, there are real problems out there. And, um, uh, you know, I, of course, every district I know is concerned about those kids and is trying to figure out strategies. My view is we have got to get really creative about how we figure out how to meet their needs and really serious about hunting down every kid and making sure that they, they've got what they need before they graduate. Here, here. All right, we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to be looking forward at the upcoming school year and talking about plans that you would like to see, I would like to see, and I think neither of us are actually seeing. So we'll be back. Hey, Farm Fam. It's no secret I've been podcasting from Abu Dhabi these past two years. But what I haven't talked much about is how I found this school and ended up teaching abroad. During the hellscape of the last four years, Hope and I decided that we needed a change. And we turned to Search Associates to make it happen. Search Associates works with 800 schools in 125 countries, so we have many choices of where to go. They assigned an associate to work with us directly to learn more about our backgrounds, our interests, and find a position that would be the perfect fit. Hope and I both wanted to teach at the same school, which you'd think would make Search harder, but working with Search Associates, you'd never know it. Their personal touch approach made it a breeze. Another great thing is that the associate who's assigned to help you is a former school leader, most often a former head of an international school, so they really get the international school scene. I can't recommend them enough. Now, here's the thing. The political situation might have changed at home, but the benefits of teaching abroad are still clear. A great job combined with a rich cultural experience that comes from experiencing another culture. Listen, don't take my word for it. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, and interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. So don't wait another day to pursue your dream of teaching abroad. With Search Associates, you'll take that journey step-by-step. From filling out the applications to selling your new school with confidence. Visit searchassociates.com to start your journey. Thank you to Search Associates for helping us live our dreams and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. 
And we are back. I would like to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network, a network of local podcasts telling stories, perspectives, elevating voices, giving points of view to things you will not get elsewhere. If you're enjoying the show, I recommend you check out our other shows. In particular, Citizen Tacoma is interviewing every candidate for office in Tacoma and Pierce County. Uh, Crossing Division's Tacoma's talk show and the ladies at IWL are constantly having conversations about equity issues. In addition, we have a show called What Say You, hosted by the Cunningham Sisters. It is the funniest thing on earth. If you enjoy what you're hearing here, I would implore you to think about joining Channel 25 as a member. Channel 253 memberships cost $4 a month or $40 a year. And if you're a member, you get access to our member-only Slack. And in our member-only Slack, we are talking about, right now, actually, uh, Amazon has decided to push back the return-to-work date for their employees. And that actually ties this conversation because uh, I think return-to-work is going to be impacted by what happens in schools. In addition, if you are a longtime listener to the show, you know we have the hashtag NerdFarmReads Book Club. We've selected our new book, and it's called An Ugly Truth. It's an expose about the awfulness of Facebook, and you know how much I love ranting about Facebook. If you are interested in joining us for that book club, you can buy the, sh- buy the book at either King's Books, or you can buy the audiobook from our friends at Libro FM, and tweet along with us using hashtag NerdFarmReads. We'll use our tweets in the conversation. And so, channel 253 slash membership, and then also an ugly truth. All right, Robin, back to our conversation. If I'm being fully transparent, this series of conversations I'm having is actually spawned by something that you posted online. You talked about how essentially you're not seeing plans and we should be seeing plans. One of my points of frustration during the pandemic was, was that I always felt like the decisions that were being made when they were being made should have been made like forever ago. So for example, right now in the U.S., there's a murmuring about the need for some sort of like online app verification for vaccines. Well, hell, that should have been happening while the vaccines were being developed. That's when the Europeans did it. That's when the Emiratis did it. Yeah. In the same vein, uh, I'm seeing that there's not a lot of communication coming from districts about what reopening is going to look like. And so like here in Washington state, there's a mask mandate. In Arkansas, they have the opposite. There's a ban on mask mandates, which is a double, never mind, just bad grammar, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I shared with you during the break the plans that we have uh, in UAE that were sent out by the Ministry of Education. Uh, I'm not going to run through those for the audience because like, I'll put those in the show notes. But my question basically is, is, are you seeing plans of a similar level of complexity or completeness coming out here in the U.S.? And unfortunately, the answer is no, uh, in general, and they're, they're here and there. But overall, we're not seeing plans. Uh, I think about two weeks ago, we did a review of our 100 districts that we tracked closely, mostly urban districts. And about 80% of them still hadn't come out with clear plans for what they were going to do for kids in terms of health and safety. And hopefully there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but if they're not communicating that to students and families or even to teachers, then we have a really big problem. And I think we do. I think, yeah, it's, it's, Unbelievable, Nate, that we are here in August. School has already started in many places, and we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what districts are doing. Um, you know, I don't, 
I have heard from a number of superintendents that they've been frustrated that they haven't gotten guidance from states. Mm. It's kind of like everybody is looking at who's got the ball (laughs) and we're dropping it. It's interesting to me how we continue to not learn lessons from elsewhere. Right. And so like here on the West Coast, we start school late. So like kids in Tacoma aren't going back until after Labor Day. There's a district in Mississippi who went back mass optional, and now they're already going back remote because there's so many cases of COVID in Mississippi. But yeah. we, I, I don't see, pl- and I, this is not me try- talking about Tacoma or Seattle in particular. Just, I am somebody who consumes a lot of media by education, and I'm not seeing concrete plans from anybody. Like, I, I, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not crazy about this. I'm not crazy here. No, there aren't plans. And then where there there is uh, transparency, it's a little disturbing, frankly. So we, again, in the districts that we've been looking at, we've looked at just mask mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, how many districts are going to require the kids to wear masks, the kids who are clearly not yet vaccinated, at least the younger ones. And uh, a third of them say they're going to require masks outright. A third say, no, they're not going to require masks. And a third have not made any uh, claim whatsoever, not any policy. So, you know, um, how can you not have a policy on masks at this point? And honestly, you know, um, why are we not throwing everything at the table that we can to keep kids safe so that they can keep learning? Masks are uh, really a basic protection right now. Everybody should be doing it. I want you to take off your policy analyst hat for a second. Just take that and put it to the side. And I want to make Robin the czar of education in a given state. We'll call it Robinistan. You're already shaking That is head. a terrifying idea. <laughs> Let's not do that. Um, Robin, what would a good plan look like to you? Well, look, I mean, on, on just health and safety, the CDC has been really clear that a layered approach to keeping kids safe is essential. So masks, vaccinations, uh, where possible, great ventilation, testing uh, is an effective way to keep, um, keep a check on what is going on. Uh, it's a combination of factors. And I think, you know, throwing the kitchen sink is uh, a great idea. Let's bring every tool that we have available to us, as long as it's not extraordinarily costly, to keep kids safe. That makes sense to me. Now, you know, if it comes down to a local local political dynamic where some one of those things is so controversial that it's going to keep you know the school board wrapped up in in politics and keep their focus away from teaching and learning for a long time. Um, look, you know, sometimes compromises have to be made and, you know, sometimes, you know, so I, you know, I'm, I guess I come down on some, uh, some element of local flexibility, local decision-making is fine as long as we can figure out a strategy for keeping kids safe and learning. It's interesting to hear you say that flexibility because one of the points that really jumped out to me is the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, and who, by the way, I remember him from being an impeachment manager in 1998 against Clinton, so he's been around for a while. He signed a law that banned schools from mandating masks, and now as cases are rising, is saying that he regrets signing that law. And like to me, that's just the most Arkansas thing ever. Uh, 
One of the things I was struck by is the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson. And for me, I have a firm memory of him being an impeachment uh, manager for the Republicans in 98 against Clinton. He's been around for a while. He signed a law that bans schools and and districts in Arkansas from imposing mask mandates. And now as cases are arising in Arkansas, he's saying he regrets doing so. So you're talking about flexibility and talking about like all the options on the table, but then states are unilaterally taking options off the table. It's frustrating for me to watch. It's, it's truly insane. And, um, you know, we've seen it uh, on mask mandates or bans. Uh, we've also seen it in remote learning. So a number of states earlier this summer or into the spring said, no, we're not going to, we, we need to get kids uh, back into classrooms. And so we're going to for, forbid remote learning. And now some of those same states are saying, oops, you know, okay. now we're in a pickle because, uh, you know, kids are getting sick and there's no backup plan to keep them learning. So that's um, that's a nice little package of craziness. Another thing you mentioned is testing. And I'm really struck by how, so I mentioned earlier on in the episode that we finished our last two weeks at school in Abu Dhabi remote. And one of the reasons why we did that is, is that students at my school and teachers were tested every two weeks. And so we had some cases and so we closed school. Um, I'm struck by the fact that I was required in Abu Dhabi to get tested every 14 days as like part of my work thing. And then here in the U.S., as I'm trying to fly back, uh, I'm trying to get a test done and it costs between $150 and $380 to get a test. Yes, your face is a lot. Exactly that. Uh, it, it's, it's wild. And so it, it feels like the basic tools and the work that the country needed to have done to get schools open is not being done. And it's the classic American thing where, like, we demand that schools be open, but we don't want to do the work to do it. Sure. And kids will pay the price. Okay. So I had you put your policymaker hat on. I'd like you to take that hat off for a second and now put on your fortune teller hat. Um, what do you think the fall looks like? Well, I think we're going to see kids getting sick. Kids get colds, kids get all kinds of things, and that's going to cause some chaos in schools that don't have really strong plans for what they're going to do in those cases. Um, what I hope is that schools will have good, you know, good containment strategies and um, protocols for you know, when the kids are going home with a cold, it doesn't shut down the whole school. Um, and I hope that communities where cases are rising so fast uh, don't don't require their schools to shut down completely because um, you know we've got to get we've got to keep kids in in school as much as possible. But I think it's going to be a little crazy um, now. You know, um, one wonderful possibility on the horizon is the vaccine for younger kids. Um, you know, we. Um, uh, um, we want to see that as soon as possible. And, um, you know, I think uh, once kids start getting vaccinated, um, you know, we'll have a good shot at, at normalcy. Something I appreciate throughout this conversation is, is you've always led with data and then moved to anecdote. And you've also vacillated between being the researcher and a parent. I want to just pry a little bit. So you mentioned earlier on, you have two students that are high school age. Is that correct? They are. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you personally preparing your family for the upcoming school year? For the coming school year, one kid's going off to college um, in New York. And so I'm, you know, I'm a little sad about that. <laughs> and I'm going to miss him. But, um, you know, I think they've got, um, they've got strong plans at, 
at his school. And I'm just hoping that he'll have something of a normal year next year. And then for my younger son, who's going to be a junior next year, well, you know, he's planning on wearing masks. He's fine with that. And he knows that, you know, anything might happen. So getting kids just uh, culturated to different possibilities and, and helping them understand that we're not through this thing. We're still right in the middle of it, really. And we've still got to be prepared for all contingencies. Are there any educators or educating leaders or thought leaders, I hate that word, but I'll use it right now, out there who you think are worth following and tracking in this conversation? Oh, gosh. Well, there are so many smart and interesting, interesting people. Um, uh, wow. I don't know. I... I know, you know, nobody is really in particular coming to to mind. Are you thinking about uh, on the health and safety front or just anything in particular? So I, I think what you just said, that like nobody leaps to mind as having their head around this and leaning on this as part of the problem, right? So like I, I literally, if we're talking health and safety or we're talking about like uh, state chiefs that are doing well, like nothing leaps to mind for me either. And so if we're both striking out thinking about people who are knocking out of the park, that's a flashing red light to me, but uh, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I, well, one thing I've enjoyed made is just getting outside my normal bubble during the pandemic, yeah. looking overseas. I mean, I, you know, got in touch with you and your your wife early on in the pandemic. And I said, tell me more, you know, tell me what's going on. What are you seeing? Who are you talking to? What, how are you resolving problems? And I guess that's what I would encourage people is um, go out and find folks who are, you know, in the healthcare, in the neuroscience field, um, you know, who are um, thinking about innovations and, and new possibilities so we can keep pushing ourselves to do things differently. That's solid advice. Uh, Robin, if people want to follow you on the socials or see more of what Serpy does, where can they look? Sure. Well, we are crpe.org, so that's really easy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Robin Lake, R-B-N-L-A-K-E. And um, I'm around. I, I love hearing from folks who want to offer up ideas, perspectives, and again, you know, just just love to um, hear ideas that will challenge my own. As do I. As do I. Robin, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the show today. I appreciate uh, the stances that you take and the passion which you take them. And I also appreciate how you always ground your takes in data. And we need more of that in conversations like this. Thanks so much. Well, I loved it. Um, I always love your perspective, Nate. So grounded in the classroom and kids and um, and you're never afraid to state your opinions either. So keep bringing it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your hands. If you're not vaccinated, like what the F are you doing? Get vaccinated and convict <laughs> the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Just keep doing what you're doing, and I... Well, actually, hold on. I need another edit. I'm fucking this up. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? 
This is Channel 253.